Well, if the threads kind of sucks and we're all on there like, woo, come on in, the water's fine. It's like, is the water fine on threads? It feels like lukewarm water at best. I think I saw like some loose band-aids in that water. It doesn't feel like the app is what you want, but that's just a testament to how much we all hate goddamn Elon Musk. It's like a hundred million plus people were like, oh, I can like clown on him for a second. I will join the weird Twitter clone. Like Mark clearly just hit control C, control V, match destination formatting, and we're happy to join him, which is crazy because Zucker Zuckerberg's not exactly the Mother Teresa of the internet. We're not dealing with like a, a Mr. Rogers figure here. This is like Mark election interference Zuckerberg. And I, I do wonder, it's like, is that our life? Are we always going to be like ping-ponging back and forth on different apps because we just need the content? We're like little content piggies. I'm on my phone. I'm addicted. I'm on threads at night in my bed, oinking it up, looking for more content slop. And I'm like, we just need an app that's made by a good person. And I don't think that happens. Like, you're never going to hear someone be like, dude, you got to get on the new Twitter type app. And you're like, oh, who made it? There's no world where your friend's going to be like, you know who made it? Andrew Garfield. What the hell is that? Stone on air coming up. Completely unsanctioned by the church. Stone on air. Whatever, let's just do this. Stone on air. That's exactly what I wanted to hear. Give human beings opportunity and you'll be absolutely shocked with what people do with it. Stone on air coming up. Stone on air. Alright, well welcome in. It is going to be a day early this week. I was going back and forth. Should it be Thursday? Should it be Wednesday? Well hell, it's done on Wednesday, so let's go ahead and do it. Yep, thread still is there and thread still sucks. I am specifically trying to get kicked off of the Threads app. It has not happened yet. That and much, much more on today's installment of the Stone on Air podcast. I had to look up who Andrew Garfield was. I was literally doing it as we spoke, just enough time to get it pulled up before I had to start speaking based on the format of the show anyway. He's an English and American actor. He's received various accolades, including a Tony Award. <clears throat> Excuse me, then it goes on from there. Um, yeah, so maybe he's a good guy. I'm not sure. Point being, Threads is awful. It is so bad, and I have decided that I am going to just send the most annoying responses to all the most annoying garbage that I continue to get in my feed. And if you haven't sampled it yet, I mean... Go ahead. If you've got an Instagram, it's not going to hurt you to just go ahead and just sign up for it. It takes a matter of a couple of seconds. little tap here, tap there, and everything's imported in. I have heard, though, I might have talked about this last week, if you want to delete threads, you cannot do it without deleting Instagram in its entirety. I don't know if that's true or not, but that would be so, so rich and so typical of something that Meta or, or Facebook or Insta or whatever plagiarized app is um, trying to push whatever they're doing now. So beware if that's something you care about. But uh, yeah, continued nonsense. I'm about to start doing like a lot of really uh, just radical out there social media posting of of like um, conspiracy theories. And and political stuff to see if that doesn't get me kicked off because just cussing people out so far has not gotten me kicked off. I've been having fun with it. 
All right, so why is the show early today? First of all, hello, everybody. It's the Stone On Air podcast. My name is Brian. I usually have this thing drop, as they say, every Thursday. It is going to be on a late Tuesday into Wednesday this week because of the Bobcat Goldthwait show, which will be taking place at JJ's on the 19th, and I just am not going to have the energy, time, or care to come home late that night and do a show. So we'll go ahead and do things early. It also means it's kind of going to be a coasting, mail-it-in show, meaning um, in the final segment of the show, I'm going to bring back an, uh, an interview I had with Wayne White in January of 2017. I couldn't believe how long ago it had been. Just as the Wayne Orama exhibit was taking place, down on the south side, as it is coming back, so there is reason for doing this. The chat. This is from the release. The Chattanooga Public Library and the Shaky Ray Levi Society have partnered to curate its upcoming exhibit, History Funhouse, The Wayne-O-Rama Story, showcased on the third floor of its downtown branch, down on Broad Street. The library will bring back the work featured at Wayne-O-Rama by native, Chattanooga native Wayne White, You'll hear all about him if you don't know about him now. Shame on you, first of all. I was only starting to understand who he was back in 17. But, um, again, third segment, plenty of conversation there. Uh, The indoor funhouse ran from 2016 to 2017. It depicted Chattanooga's history in the style of puppets and sculptures. The library will host host an opening reception on Thursday the 27th at 6 until 7.30. And then the exhibit will be on display through the end of December. I would like to make that opening reception, but on a Thursday at 6 o'clock in downtown, especially with the disaster that is now Phase 2 of I-24 and I-75 work, I don't know if I'll make it down there or not for that, but the the third floor will have this going through December. I think that's really cool, so I use it as an excuse to uh, not have to do anything in the third segment, and I'm just going to replay that interview in its entirety If you did hear it, which you probably didn't, you likely don't remember it. And if you didn't, well, then there you go. It's not my finest work ever. I get better at this as the years go along. It's not bad either, though. If it was terrible, I wouldn't play it again. But So that's coming up in the third segment of the show. In the middle segment, it'll just be a continuation of this open. I have many, many things to get to here. And I'm just going to kind of start rolling through all of them here. Nothing that really matters all that much, especially here in the open, as I'll get you three pieces of audio in about eight minutes from right now. The realest thing, the worst idea, and the coolest thing. So let's see, where am I at? Coming up next week, I will have an interview with Angie Lisi, formerly the drummer of the Dead Deads back in the day, many other bands in Nashville. She's bringing Fingernails Are Pretty, an all-female version of a tribute to the Foo Fighters at the Barrel House Ballroom on the 29th of July. We'll talk to her about that and other things in the music scene in Nashville next week. Uh, The update on the used car situation. I thought this was pretty funny and very worth doing. I don't know if John listens to this show anymore or not, but he'll get a kick out of this. John Moss is his name. He used to do a podcast. uh, I don't remember with who it was with, but I think it's long dormant now, but I think it was called Chat, C-H-A, Eats. Just, you know, places to go eat in town I, I don't I'm not sure exactly if it got much more than that but um I got to know him through that and as he was a listener and then I got to know him as a car guy he works for CarMax and I've uh, kind of inquired twice over the last five years about getting a used car 
And this one that I had picked out coming from Atlanta, Toyota Yaris, I had it shipped here. And I decided this is the one I was going to get. I liked everything about it except for, well, the price. A $15,000 car that eight years ago go, sold new at sixteen nine, And it had 85,000 miles on it. But for a Toyota that's well taken care of, that's not that bad. That'll last a long time, especially in my hands. It'll last a long time as long as the first 85,000 were handled even, you know, oh, somewhat effectively uh, of its uh, early life. But if I it finally, it just fell away. I just, I never heard back. There was supposed to be some kind of small parts that had to be fixed. No big deal. Headlight lamps, some a fender, like nothing that was mechanical from what I was to understand. And so he said, well, this one's taking a while if you want to find something else. And I said, you know what? I'm tired of looking for these just ridiculously, offensively, absurdly priced cars. I found the one I want. I'll wait. I'll wait. I don't care because I don't even really want it. Well, we're pushing damn near two months since this conversation began. And the um, appraisal was done on my car to get that ball rolling. Literally about two months. And he sent me a text the other day and it said, hey, man, I got some information on that car if you want to give me a call. And I called him and he was like, hey, man, total, you know, I apologize Ball dropped everywhere. Um, who, where, when, why doesn't matter. But at this point, because it, you know, it just—I have already moved on. I was already done with it. But it's like, man, I was—I was really afraid of which podcast I might become the subject matter of if if I didn't get with you and clear this up and make this as right as I could. Uh, somewhat kidding, not kidding, in the, for the most part. And I was like, dude, don't worry. I don't trash my friends on this show unless you become not my friend anymore because you screw me over, which was this was not the case whatsoever. Turns out they junked that thing, sent it to an auction, and they said, well, to make it up to me, they'll ship any car within 500 miles of Chattanooga here for free for me to test drive at no obligation. And I said, you know what? It, just forget it. Just Let's just forget this all the way around. I'm going to keep driving my car now because it's just as crappy used as basically any crappy used car I'm going to get. So um, that's the update there. I am out of the used car market. What else to get to here on the open? The State of the City Address is coming up in August, August 3rd at the Walker Theater uh, Tim Kelly, I'm sure uh, Mayor Kelly and many others will be speaking at this. I've never been to a state of the city address. I RSVP'd. It is also on a Thursday, and it also starts kind of early. So I'm not sure if I'll make it or not, but I certainly would like to. So we've got that coming up on the 3rd of August. Um, two more quick things here. The... Uh, rehab facility I went to earlier this year. If you know, you know. If you don't, you can go back and chronicle it all if you feel like it. But I don't drink anymore. And they have these quarterly gatherings for alumni. And I feel like it's somewhat important to be involved in that a little bit. I don't even know exactly why other than just kind of positive reinforcement. And I have stopped going to AA meetings. And I've done segments on that as to why. I don't like them at all. I'm done with them, as a matter of fact. I basically borderline hate Alcoholics Anonymous. I really think that it's, um, for me, a very ineffective 
group of people and teachings and overall process. I don't like anything about it. And this was out of Chester Frost Park, you know, just hanging out on the lake, cooking burgers and dogs, picnic food, you know, making small talk, something I normally would want to have nothing to do with. But I found a, or I touched base with one of the guys I've kept in touch with who I was in there with. And a guy I like a lot. And he was going. So I said, you know what? Hell, I'll show up at least by noon, grab a burger and, you know, some food. And we can chit-chat and catch up a little bit. And I was telling him basically what I just told you about how the AA thing was not working for me. And this guy came up who I recognized his face, couldn't tell you his name. And he was, you know, he pulled the, I'm sorry, I can't remember y'all's name. But I remember you, you know, whatever. Who knows whether he did or not. But the guy went straight back down that road of, he's like, all right, so, hey, man, so uh, where y'all going to meetings at? How many times a week you're going to meetings? And my buddy, who is, um, eh, he handles people differently than I do. Let's say maybe a little bit more of what they want to hear type responsive guy. And I just straight up said, oh, yeah, no, I'm not going to any meetings, man. Those don't do anything for me. I don't need it. I'm doing good, though. He's like, oh, my God. Like, it looked like he saw a ghost. And he started feeding me all the same bullshit. He just, can like, oh, man, are you, are you sure? Man, brother, I'm thinking about you. I mean, you know, th- and this is one of those deals I that I've talked about in the past. Uh, how long has it been? Uh, it's going on five months. Oh, man, that's just not that long. Are you sure? What do you mean that's not that long? When it was four days, y'all acted like I just hung the goddamn moon. And now it's four months and it's not been that long. It's the same thing that happened two months ago. Oh, it's only been 60 days. You don't really know what you're talking about. Shut up. Shut up. I know me better than anybody knows me. And if I know I can do this and I say it out loud, then I can. And if I'm wrong, I'll admit it out loud and adjust on the fly. I don't just willy-nilly start throwing crap against the walls just to see what people, you know, and just say what people want to hear. And, I mean, he was genuinely concerned, pulled the same old AA nonsense on me, and uh, I just said, man, I'm telling you, it, it, it ain't going anywhere, right? Right? Like, you haven't heard that they're closing it down anytime soon, correct? Yeah, no, they're not. So, if I need it, it's there. And I'm telling you, I don't need it. Now, I didn't quite say it that assholishly, but it was kind of close. I was kind of like, I, you know, I'm get, I've had kind of enough now. I've had enough. I'm not just some dude who's just wandering through the woods trying to figure out life. And I certainly don't have it licked either. I certainly don't have all of this under control, you know, to the 100%. And I might never will. But, I mean, come on, man. let Live and let live. Right? I mean, they. it's frustrating. It is terribly frustrating. And then one quick mention. I was I went to the Common House. This weekend, and it's a pretty good story. And unfortunately, sorry, I'm not going to tell it because it involves a very good friend of mine, um, a lifelong friend of mine. But he wants to do a podcast, and he wants me to help him with it. And it's basically stories from tour, tour stories, primarily from fish, but it'll be from the dead and others as well. And he is an interesting guy, and I think it would be, if nothing else, just fun, a lot of fun. A lot of moving parts that got to work together to make it happen. But the Common House has a podcast studio, and I wanted to go take a look at it. Now, I don't need a podcast studio, but if you got one, I'll use it. And um, the whole experience of, of that old YMCA building, which is a 
fascinating piece of architecture, historical and everything else. And it was just a fun, fun evening and afternoon, but it was wild. And uh, will stories from tour come to fruition at any point? Well, if it does, you'll be the first one to know. But I checked it out, about 185 bucks for a single membership, 350 for a uh, for a couple a month. If you use it a lot, I guess it's worth it. But uh, that's the kind of change in my life that doesn't exist. Not for something like that, but it certainly is cool. Very, very impressive. Enjoyed the time at the Common House. And hopefully we make this happen and we start recording over there. That would be so much fun. More on that if it ever becomes a thing. But I'm telling you, it probably won't. Let's shift gears here before we get to the second segment of the show. Three pieces of audio. Start with the realest thing. This is about Breaking Bad, a guy talking about how it was ruining him. But for me, it is more like Better Call Saul recently. This is today's realest thing. Breaking Bad, every episode, it'd be a great episode. And at the end, it'd make you want to see the next episode. You know how many times I was late for work because that stupid show? <laughs> because I started watching it. I was like, okay, we're going to, you know, I'm home. I'm going to watch one episode. Then I'm going to go to bed. Then they have that stupid hook. Five episodes later, 6 o'clock in the morning. I got to wake up in two hours. I'm dying. I oversleep, get write-ups, eventually get fired. Breaking Bad owes me money. Y'all got me fired. I also sucked at that job. (laughs) That's so real with me with Better Call Saul. It turns into like 3 o'clock in the morning. I'm like, Jesus, I can't stay up any longer. But this show just hooks you in. Of course, Better Call Saul is a spinoff from Breaking Bad, so they're very similar in the structure of how the show hooks you, and it just, it will not let go. This is today's worst idea. It's nothing but just to laugh at uh, gotta drive a big-ass truck guy. Hey, it's Big Al for Ford. Are you a big man, but no one knows it? Buy an F-150 and cosplay as a licensed contractor. The only thing you're hauling is tons of repressed emotion. Got reprimanded at work today? Take a poop parking spots at Applebee's. No one's calling you a compact. Found a gray hair in your beard this morning? Ride someone's ass on the highway and blind them with your prank. You still exist! Your ex-wife getting plowed by a dentist? Go spend $500 on gas. You a cuck and you drive a truck. Did you always want to be a singer but instead worked at the cable company for 25 years and you just don't know how your life turned out this way? And your son confided in you that he wanted to audition for the school musical but you shamed him and forbid it, you fucking hypocrite. <laughs> just like your father. Room, room, throw an energy drink out the window. It's not your fault. You got a big dick and you're gonna repopulate the earth. Uh, the, uh, the video makes a little bit better but the audio is just good enough. And quickly here, this is short. It's from the uh, Somewhere in the 1980s, reporters asking the Grateful Dead, has success gone to their head as the final Dead & Company shows wrapped up in San Francisco this weekend? This is today's coolest thing. Has success spoiled the dead? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it looks pretty rotten to me, doesn't it? <laughs> so how has it changed you? Well, I was noticing the other night, for instance, that... Uh, when I'm going through pistachios, opening pistachios, the, the hard to open ones, I don't bother with them anymore. <laughs> Who's got time? Good point. I mean, seriously, who does have time for those damn impossible to open pistachios when you're super rock stars like the Grateful Dead were for about five minutes in the 19. 19- 
80s as they wrapped up three nights at uh, Giants, Baseball Giants uh, Stadium, Oracle Park. And uh, I didn't watch any of it. I followed along on Twitter. Not threads. Thank you very much. And uh, I believe it was not Fade Away they closed with. The second to last was this one, Broke Down Palace. And I am fine with the chapter of the Grateful Dead being done with. I wrapped that up in my life in Atlanta back in May. And loved the show I went to. And it was a fitting, perfect way for the dead to end for me. And um, onward and upward, as Bill Lockhart used to say, when it comes to my musical taste for the rest of my life, is the jam band thing is basically closing in my life. A friend of mine went to see Fish this weekend, and he was telling me about it, and I love Fish, I love their music. He was telling me about the show just for a quick few minutes today, and he's like, oh man, the show's so good. Dude, they played a 30-minute tweezer. And I'm thinking, I don't want to just burst this bubble of excitement, but I'm thinking, God, Jesus, 30 minutes of anything. Get lost, man. Go away. I've had enough of it. Uh, But love the Grateful Dead, and that chapter has closed. I'm sure Bobby will still show up and play here and there, maybe even show up with the Wolf Brothers. Maybe I'll even go. We'll see. Coming up next, more news, notes, headlines, postscripts, and commentary. And then my conversation with Wayne White at the tail end of the show from 2017. Hang tight, it's coming up. Fare you well, fare you well. I love you more than words can tell. Listen to the real, the same sweet songs to rock my soul. Now more Stone on Air. It's about to get all stupid up in here. Stoneonair.com. What we would would be striking for if we strike is unbelievably important. We ought to protect the people who are kind of on the margins. And you, twenty-six thousand bucks a year is what you have to make to get your health insurance. And and there are a lot of people who residual payments are what carry them across that threshold. And 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 if if those residual payments dry up, so does their health care. And that's absolutely uh, unacceptable. We we can't have that. So we got to figure out something that that that, that is fair. Um, anyway, we'll, we'll we'll see where it goes. Everyone hopes that it won't happen. Nobody wants a work stoppage. It's painful for every other guild. Really painful for IATSE and all of our brothers and sisters there. Nobody wants that. But but we gotta we gotta be working under contracts that are fair. That was Matt Damon speaking about what is now the official street Screen Actors Guild strike, which is joining the writers, which have been on strike for a couple of months now. This is not brand, brand new, but it's released this year. I just stumbled on it the other day. Dwayne Betts, Dickie's boy. He looks just like Dickie Betts. Sounds just like him, too. Dwayne spelled the same as Dwayne Allman was. I mean, it's almost too much like the Almond Brothers, but to me, there's no such thing as too much like the Almond Brothers. The joke at Riverbend, Riverbend, the joke at Monroe years ago used to be uh, Brian's happy because it's a 24-hour Almond Brothers cover band fest. <laughs> Funny because it's almost true. Uh, what's this song called? Waiting on a Song, I believe, is the name of it. No particular reason other than I just saw it the other day. So I'll get to a little bit more on that Screen Actors Guild thing in a minute. First, I want to 
stop with this or start with this. I actually recently have been getting a lot of my material from, uh, you know, for the show and for other, just overall knowledge from Morning Brew, which is basically just a, uh, a, a newsletter that comes to your, to your email. You've probably heard of it. Maybe you haven't, but it's just that, a newsletter of the highlights of the day. And this one was from today. Taylor Swift music. Uh, let the, 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 hold on. Where did I want to go to? It says, Swift became the first woman to have 12 number one albums after Speak Now, which re- was released last week, went to number one in the Billboard 200. A dozen times she has passed uh, Barbara Streisand, who had done it 11 times. I really don't understand when especially old types, you know, 50, 40, late 40s, 50s, 60-year-olds, get really all butt hurt when people compare Taylor Swift to the popularity and the importance of like uh, Michael Jackson or most recently Tina Turner or so many others. She's just as musically relevant and popular and important as anybody in the history of music, if you're asking me. And I don't even like the stuff. I don't even think it's that great. But you can't argue with the results of what comes out of this woman's machine. It is unbelievable, and she is absolutely in any of those conversations, if you're asking me. But here, a pop quiz for you that I will uh, answer at the end. You can think about it as the segment goes along. Um, What is it? There are only three other musical acts with 12 or more number one albums in the history of music. Only three other musical acts with 12 or more number one albums. I'll tell you who I guessed, and then I'll give you the answer at the end of the segment. I guessed. I started going through all the typical ones. Rolling Stones, The Eagles, Led Zeppelin, Beatles. Really, all of them except for The Stones. I wasn't sure if they even had 12 albums to begin with. So I didn't pick any of those. I My guesses were Elton John, Michael Jackson, and Billy Joel. So 12 or more number one albums, the only other three, who are they? Think about that, and I'll give you the answer at the end of the segment. But speaking more on this strike, it is a big deal because people love TV, and this isn't going to get taken care of anytime soon. I always highlight so much more than I ever end up getting around to reading, so I won't bore you with all this. But the uh, box office does remain 20 to 25% off of pre-pandemic pace and uh, the streaming really is what has got this in AI and, and, and how residuals are paid. That's really where all this is coming from. Yeah, from what Matt Damon said on the beginning here on the op- on, the, on the rejoin, I should say, $26,000 it takes to get residuals. $26,000 in Los Angeles? My goodness, these people must be starving to death. Um, and the numbers for streaming are much more difficult to quantify quickly Kind of like podcasting as opposed to traditional broadcasting. When you look at box office numbers and TV ratings, which TV ratings are less made up than radio ratings, but they're still somewhat uh, made up. Those That foundational part of how writers and actors were making a living, well, it's starting to evaporate. It's starting to go away. And they're, the SAG and the, uh, the Writers Guild are both looking for more percentages of subscriber revenue, And they want to use a third-party data measurement company called uh, Patriot Analytics. No, excuse me, not Patriot. That sounds like something that uh, would be a MAGA thing. Parrot. It's Parrot Analytics. And um, here's one thing that was quoted from um, somebody who it was. doesn't matter, but somebody within the uh, the higher-ups of all this. 
an anonymous source says, the end game is to allow things to drag on until union members start losing their apartments and losing their houses. The Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers denied this. Um, but if that's true, well, I, I would believe it. And, uh, you know, I don't know. There's a lot of content out there for people like me. They could, the writers and the screen actors could go on strike for five years and there would still be enough material out there for me to watch. I don't care what the new Star Wars TV show is. I don't care what the new uh, Black Mirror is or True Detective is, but many people do. Uh, Disney has been doing all kinds of cost-cutting. ESPN most recently is there you know, underneath that umbrella. The headline reads, Disney could soon sell its TV assets as Iger, Bob Iger, who's been kept on as CEO, whatever he is, um, that are not core to the company. His also is, um, it, for the next two years of his extended position, is looking to bring Disney's streaming business to profitability. They're still not turning a profit. It's because they've bitten off more than they can chew, and now they're trying to skimp everywhere that they can. Disney has been weighing uh, whether they should buy all of Hulu. They own 66% of it. Comcast owns the rest. This is a lot more complicated than just a couple of minutes on some random podcast in Chattanooga, Tennessee, so we'll leave it at that. Uh, Chattanooga is among city dealing with unhealthy air quality. That is from Tuesday's Chattanooga Times Free Press, and I'm not going to dig too far into that one, and I'm certainly not going to be one of those same old typical types. Oh, climate change. Oh, my God, it's so hot. Oh, everything's so bad. Oh, my God, we got to do something about it. Um, No, I'm not one of those guys. Uh, I recycle. I clean up after myself. I try my best. But climate is one of the least things I care about when it comes to the overall macro view of the world. But how about this? How about this for something that people don't ever know about and you want to start talking about climate change and the destruction of the environment? This is on page B5 of the Times Free Press that nobody's going to see because nobody looks at this paper to begin with and they certainly don't make it to page B5. Sinking tugboat spills thousands of gallons of diesel in the Tennessee River. It was just this past weekend in northwestern Alabama, whoever they is, said it was too soon to know the damage, but between three and 5,000 gallons of fuel had seeped into the water. Quote, we don't know what the long-term effects on the ecosystem might be up there. Oh, I don't know, killing the hell out of stuff and poisoning and destroying our already disgusting, disgusting river. This is why I want to just strangle somebody when they want to, oh, is, is climate change man-made? Of course it is, numbnut. We're destroying this planet. We're destroying it. Okay, now we're going to have to destroy parts of it to have a quality of life that we've come to used to to be used to but don't argue with me or anybody else that we're not doing that just say you don't care and then okay cool <laughs> that that's an acceptable answer to me is that i don't care that's an acceptable answer not well you know there's not really uh evidences you know i'm not really sure how the environment's getting so polluted i mean is it man-made you know i don't really know stop stop it jesus uh, this is now a hell in my life I'm having to deal with, and I still don't know exactly how bad it's going to get. I'll let you know as it goes along. Second phase of I-75 and I-24 split project gets underway this past weekend. They're going to replace the two bridges that they did not replace of the four uh, in the first phase. 
when everybody got so pissed off because it didn't fix anything in Tennessee. But if you knew anything about the project, which I knew a touch more than anybody else going into it, and then I knew much more as I as I looked further into it, the first phase was to fix the Georgia traffic. That was a a, a um, agreement between GDOT and TDOT, and however those funds are accumulated between you know local Tennessee and Georgia politicians to get the Georgia part fixed first. They need 75 flowing freer to get people to Florida and get people to Michigan, trucks and travelers, quicker through the huge hub that is Chattanooga. They didn't have anything to do with fixing 24 in that first go-round, as you can tell if you drive through it. Phase two is now to fix the Tennessee part. And the Germantown Road exit has already been eliminated now from I-24. That's the exit I take every day to go home. So now I'm going to have to get off at Moore Road, which is already mostly backed up most days anyway. And now it's going to be a parking lot just about every single minute of the day, but certainly in uh, higher drive times. And I remember when I was working downtown and the widening of 27 was taking place. And it started in like 2015 or something like that. And back then, I was still not quite old guy yet to where time just evaporated into thin air. And I thought, holy hell, this, I remember saying this to myself, it'll be, I'll be 39 years old before this project is done. And at that time, that was like three to four years away. And I just couldn't conceive it. Well, it turns out I was 40 years old before they got it done. And then as soon as that happened, my work moves to Ulawa, and I have to drive through phase one of I-75 and I-24 every day. And luckily, it finishes somewhat quickly because it was already about three-quarters of the way done at that point. So now I look at this and think, as a just try to figure out a way to cram more lanes into a landlocked area of the ridge cut, what that's going to look like and how going home every day is going to be a disaster for thousands of us every day. But more importantly, me <laughs> and my travel around towards East Brainerd and the Brainerd area and the North and South Terrace. It is just getting started and it is a bleep show. Speaking of a bleep show, maybe it's not that exactly, but some positive news for the Lookout Stadium. There was some renderings released just as I went to record today from, I believe it was News, News Channel 9, second round of renderings. Uh, Braves ballpark firm joins the Lookouts team. EMJ here locally was hired as construction manager of the project, and they're working with Braysfield and Gary. I think it was a Gory or Gary? G-A-R-R-I-E. I think that's an A or an O, whatever. Whoever the hell they are, they work. They had uh, lots to do with the design work of Truist and the battery in Atlanta. So that's mostly cool, I guess. Jermaine Freeman, inter, uh, interim chief of staff for Chattanooga Mayor Tim Kelly, told the authority, that's the Chattanooga Sports Authority, that the hiring of EMJ is vital to arriving at a final price tag for the facility slated. Well, I thought you guys already had a final price tag of the bonds you were trying to get issued. Oh, well, that's where they continue to go with this. Officials earlier said the authority planned to issue up to $79.5 million in bonds for fund construction of the new stadium, but rising inflation is a concern. Freeman says he's hopeful that the authority can go to the bond market for financing within the next few months. It's been damn near a year since its announcement, and they haven't even begun to, to secure the bonds yet. 
Again, as I mentioned the other week, Weston Womp, the asshole that he is, might have actually been on to something here. He said the action taken Thursday will help the stadium project stay on track to open for the start of the lookout season in 2025. And that is some lofty expectations. Speaking of lofty, that's the headline of the Chattanooga Times Free Press from just a few days ago. Chattanooga area's median home prices jumped over $200,000 over the past decade. In 10 years, the median house price is up $200,000. Now, a median, if you need a refresher, I often do. I forget some of this terminology. Median is everything, half of everything is below 200 or whatever that number is, and half of everything is above. So it's not the same as an average, but it is still a number that can be used as a barometer. I could read this thing. I'm not going to. I'm just going to give you some of these numbers. Just uh, a couple quickly. 1,778. That's the number of homes listed in Chattanooga last month. Of course, constantly hear from all the realtors. And don't even get me started on these realtors and the wannabe realtors. Oh, my God. I've spent a second on it before, and I don't have the energy for it right now. Oh, there's a shortage. We don't have any inventory. Well, you got 1,778 overpriced homes. How about that for inventory? And also, get the hell out of my social media feed. Sorry. Anyway, I'll move along. And 6.67 is the average for a 30-year mortgage as of last month. A peak of 7.08 last October. And then, of course, as early as just 2022, around January, it was 3 point two two that'll change that'll go down some point here are the numbers residential rise the median price of homes in chattanooga in 2013 was a hundred and thirty four thousand dollars it was up to 161 by 2016 by 2020 let me oh let me start here in 2019 it had gone up to two hundred thousand so it had gone up seventy thousand in six years in one year, one jump from 19 to 20, it went up 30,000 more dollars. And since 2020, it has gone up 65 to 70,000 more to $339,000. That is the median household house price in Chattanooga. 339000 What are, I mean, I'm not trying to be, I'm asking a legitimate question here. I'm not trying to be rhetorical. What are all these young people going to do? What is, are these young millennials and Gen Z going to do? I mean, like, what are they going to do for a living? How are they going to live in a home? Where are they going to get the money to be able to live a quality of life around here? Most of these homes and all this pricing that have been gouging and skyrocketing is from out of town. This is like VW people. This is people relocating from California and other areas of, of way higher taxes and way higher property values. This is not people who have lived here their whole life. What are they going to do? What are all my friends who are middle class-ish and barely above, what are all their children going to do? The logistics business is already pretty much peaked. I mean, that's going to be here. We're the hub for that. There's work in that. And yes, you can make six, six figures doing it, but Steam just let a whole bunch of people go the other week, the other month. I mean, we all can't be optometrists. 
We all can't be dentists. We all can't be the the kind of salaries, occupations that are going to be able to support this kind, these kinds of numbers. And th- this is the same thing with the used cars or the new cars and everything else. Br- bring on a recession, please, now. Crash and burn. Let's crack 2008 all over again. I've never wanted an economic downturn so bad in my life. I'm not being, this is not hyperbole. I'm not exaggerating. I want a market crash and I want it now. All right, sorry. That uh, wraps up the second segment of the show. I actually have plenty of day left now on a Tuesday. I got to go cut the damn grass in 89 degree uh, heat at uh, what is now almost 8 o'clock at night. Make some dinner and then get ready to go to JJ's tomorrow. Where was the trivia question? Where is it? What did I do with it? I crumple it up? Damn it. Hold on. Okay. Sorry. There it is. 12 number one uh, albums. There's only been three artists who have ever done that. Who is it? I guessed Elton John, Michael Jackson, and Billy Joel. In the history of music, three artists with 12 number one Billboard 200 records. That is, drumroll, Drake with 12, Jay-Z with 14, and the Beatles with 19. And uh, I can never say that word that starts with a P. Posthumously, meaning after they're dead or done. Um, much of those, the Beatles didn't have 19 records as a band. So that, that must be stuff that's been released far since they were done as a band in what? 1969 or 1970 or so, whatever that is. So there's your answer. Drake, Jay-Z, and the Beatles. So I get none right. I don't pass go. I don't get $200. And I don't get a $330,000 home to live in or a $15,000 used car either. All right, I hope you guys enjoy this conversation I had with Wayne White back in 2017 at his exhibit in downtown Chattanooga, Wayne O'Rama. I'll get that for you coming up next. And you are back to the Stone on Air podcast, recording live to tape down at Wayne Orama. Really, really cool gig for me today. And I appreciate everybody involved in helping make it happen. Uh, of course, we were just talking with Jennifer Crutchfield, talking about the, the nuts and bolts of the exhibit here itself. Um, but the, the man whose main, main work, he's got volunteers, people to help him. But his vision, the person who put this together, is... Uh, is Wayne White, and he is my guest today. And uh, Wayne, thank you for taking a few minutes. I know you got to get out of town soon. I know you're working here each and every day. And sit down with me for a couple minutes is uh, certainly I do appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. It's good to be here. Um, tonight, tonight is what you're listening to here. It's the uh, Smashing Pumpkins, the, the video, and a uh, little homework assignment for you out there listening to the podcast right now. Um, tonight, tonight, and big time from Peter Gabriel. Pause the, the podcast right now. Pause it. And then go watch both of those. And then we'll wait for you. And when you come back, we'll be you'll be filled in. All right? So go. All right. Welcome back to the podcast. You've now uh, seen both 
of those videos, which we'll talk a little bit more uh, later on. What you've been doing, uh, Wayne, is uh, I didn't know it was technically a, a genre, um, installation art. Yeah. To, to tell me about installation art. I mean, I've heard of that installations, but I didn't uh, know it was actually a genre. Yeah, installation art sounds like a real drag, you know? <laughs> it's like, whoa, boy, I hate saying that. I hate using the official terms. Okay. I'd rather call them fun houses, you know, anything but installation. Uh, well, yeah. fun house is a good way. I mean, it's, it's again, we'll talk about Pee Wee, but Pee Wee's Playhouse was a fun house kind of thing. So Yeah, it's a, I've been doing art. Uh, we'll, we'll go with installation. I've been doing them um, for about um, seven years now. I, I travel around the country, and I'm, I go to different cities, and I always base my uh, installation, the work on uh, the local history of the place, you know, just because I love history. Sure. And uh, it's a ready-made content, and it's a great story. So, like, I went to Oklahoma, and I made a rodeo. I went to Houston, and I did a giant head of George Jones, because George got his start in Houston. I went to a little town in York, Pennsylvania, uh, York, Pennsylvania did a Civil War uh, installation, because there was a big uh, invasion there during the Civil War. And now... Uh, I, so I naturally wanted to come back to my hometown and do one about Chattanooga, you know, because uh, that's my favorite stories. That's my favorite history, and it's the place I grew up. Yeah, you went to uh, Hickson High School, and um, we'll get to, to some of that in a minute. But um, I, I've watched some interviews with you, so I don't want you to have to answer the same questions over and over again. But um, I, I know the story of your first-grade teacher t yeah. telling in front of the class uh, which could be frightening for people to be singled out, you know, singled out and say, "Hey!" But I mean, it was a, the ultimate compliment that this, you know, this young man, this young boy is going to be an artist. And yes. at that point, you you realize that that was something you were always going to do. That's an awfully young age to, to 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 figure something like that out. But I highly doubt that you were thinking about how you were going to make a living the rest of your life or anything along those lines no. at that age. What at what point did you realize that this is something that is not necessarily something for fun or uh, a way just for some extra cash on the side? That this is something you could actually do for a living for maybe forever? <laughs> did it take a long time? I mean, it didn't take very long at all because I was already hustling kids' lunch money in the first grade, <laughs> doing drawings for them. Well, I mean, I get I would do drawings of Bob Brandy, which I still am doing in my own way. I got a big Bob Brandy sculpture here. I do drawings for them and, and, and charge them a nickel or a dime and stuff, and I got in trouble for it. Very entrepreneurial of you yeah. at a very young age. Right away, I knew that it had some kind of power and that, that could be uh, monetized, as they say. But I, 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 uh, I, that's a good question. When did it really dawn on me? I guess... I. And I guess that is an honest answer. I always believed that I could do it for a living. Wow. That's all I ever wanted to do. And uh, So you went to Hickson High School. You graduated yeah. from MTSU. Um, I actually I know Murfreesboro very well. Um, yeah. Back in the late 90s, uh, it was dubbed by Rolling Stone or Spin or something as like the next Seattle um, I, in some little blurb, you know. And uh -huh. so all my friends were all musicians and everybody went to Murfreesboro. I was called my alma mater. I didn't actually go to school. I just lived across from the Murphy Center. I did too. Uh, over there on Division Street. I lived near there. And, yeah. uh, and so I hung out with everybody and did college kind of things. I just didn't have to wake up and go to class in the morning. So I'm pretty <laughs> familiar with MTSU. But um, so you went out, as soon as you got done at MTSU in uh, 1979, 1980, that's when I was born, 
um, Wayne White, my guest on the Stone on Air podcast, you were off to New York. Yeah. That quickly. I was. I, I, I spent a year in Nashville in 1980, and then in 81, I moved to New York. I had seen a magazine called Raw Magazine, and uh, it was like the new generation of underground comics, something I'd always kind of been interested in. I was very disillusioned with trying to make paintings and sell them because that was not very encouraging in Nashville in 1980 to be an artist. And so I, I, I uh, wanted to go back into cartooning, something I always loved as a kid and something I did in uh, growing up for school newspapers and stuff. So I went to New York to be a cartoonist in 81. And that was, uh, that's kind of, you answer my question a little bit next to say, what was your passion at that time? Was it uh, illustrations? Uh, it was, I think, an editorial cartoons kind of thing, no, maybe? It was, or? it was comic strips. Comic strips. Uh, alternative comics, as you would say. It was the beginning of an era we're still in, the dawn of the graphic novel and uh, uh, comics for adults and, you know, and serious themes. And that's what Raw Magazine meant, represented to me. And, also, as to be an illustrator, also I could always draw, and I wanted to. Again, I wanted to hustle some money from it. I wanted to get that uh, lunch money. Well, so we move into uh, closer to the mid '80s, and how does the Pee Wee Herman show get on your radar? Is it something you had noticed or heard about, or how did that become even an idea? Well, I'd been in New York about three years, and I finally started getting work, freelance work for magazines. And then, lo and behold, Tennessee called again. My friend in Nashville had gotten a job at a PBS station, and they needed a set designer and a puppet designer for a new kids' uh, music instruction show for the elementary school. Okay. And I got the job. I went back down to Nashville. I stayed for about four months. I made a show called Mrs. Kabobble's Caboose in 1985, which is still on in some PBS markets in the South. Wow. I took that with me back up in the winter of 86, back up to New York City. I took that portfolio, and that's how I got the Pee Wee job. Um, and uh, was that? That was basically the question. <laughs> <laughs> that was basically the question. I lost my train of how many, uh How many seasons were you working with? with I them? worked four seasons on Pee Wee, and that completely changed my life. I can imagine. I immediately... Be- got into television production and, and, and got away from magazines and illustration and comics and was fully immersed just overnight, literally, and started getting other jobs like Shining Time Station, uh, Peter Gabriel's Big Time Video, uh, Bequin's World, Riders. It, it went on and on for 25 years. Well, I'm going to come back to that in just a, just a minute. I want to fast forward, though. I'm going to kind of go out. Of, I'm doing this whole podcast out of order. I'm doing... St- Second, first, and third, last, and all this stuff. But I, so I'm going I'm to jump ahead about 10, 12 years because I didn't know until I started looking around that there. Were, I didn't even know there was a Weird Al show. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I wasn't as much Pee Wee. I don't know why, but um, I've certainly watched it. You didn't. You had one of the voices in Pee Wee too. I forgot about. I that. had several voices in Pee Wee. Several. Randy, Dirty Dog, Mr. Kite, Roger the Monster. But Weird Al, I loved, loved, still do, and I had no idea that. Uh, that that he had yeah. a TV show. Of course, this is what yeah. the theme song sounds like, as you would expect something by Weird Al to sound. But it didn't last that long. No, did it? it was a flop. It lasted like one run. I don't even think they reran it. Yeah. I, I worked on several think projects like that, and unfortunately, you know, 
Al had the goods. I don't know what. There just wasn't. It just didn't work out. I did the sets and puppets on that. Yeah, yeah. I saw the the like some of the the opens and things, and it, it's just like it's other styles of music or styles of art. I could now I can see where yours exactly is. I mean, I don't know if everything is always your design, but I can. There's certain things I can tell. Yep, that's Wayne. That's Wayne right there. <laughs> and I mean that is the ultimate compliment. Wayne Thanks. White, my guest, uh, recording the. The uh, podcast live to tape at his exhibit on 1800 Rossville Avenue. I'm going to take a quick break. One more go around. I do want to talk about those uh, music videos for a minute, and then I will yeah. get, get out of your way and let you get back to work. Thank All you for right. being down here. Quick break. Be right back. This is the most listened to, downloaded, and most easily accessible podcast in the city of Chattanooga. This is Stone on Air. More with Wayne White next. And you are back with the Stone On Air podcast, recording live to tape down at Wainorama, downtown Chattanooga on the south side, 1800 Rossville Avenue. The exhibit will be opening and open and changing and updating um, until September. Yes. So if you've been once, you can come again and you'll see something you didn't see the time before. The first time I was here was um, the open and uh, the opening that, you, that had a huge crowd. And there's a that was was that in September? That was in November. November. I thought yeah. it felt. I thought it was a little colder. And okay. um, and there's a lot new since then. There is. It's the part of the concept is that it keeps growing and changing, and getting better. Getting we're, better. We're going to talk to some of the people that you're they're volunteering with you and helping helping you work when you're in town. When you're not, um, you reside in Los Angeles. I do. I live in uh, L.A. Right smack dab in the middle of it. I, I'm from. I was born in Southern California, and I'm thinking about going out there later this year. I live I, in Los Feliz, which okay. is right next to Hollywood, between Hollywood and Silver Lake, up in the hills. I'm from um, originally Oceanside, California, just yep. just outside of San Diego, and absolutely incredibly amazing place that I beautiful. Uh, unfortunately, I think the cost of living got in my family's way, and we had to get out of there. Um, but that's a whole other conversation. It's not all that interesting, anyway. Wayne White, my guest. So MTV is two or three, four years old when you're starting to work with Pee Wee. When you were thinking about artists and things you're going to do, getting out of college, you, you, were, you were going to work for publications. Was TV that kind of design in your mind at all, or did that evolve from the, the Pee Wee Herman kind of experience? Well, I was always excited by cool stuff on TV, like any young person is, you know. Uh, but I never thought of, my, of myself doing it. I... Uh, I kind of, <clears throat> I was doing my own homemade puppet shows for the longest, and I noticed that kind of aesthetic in the culture, like with Andy Kaufman and his funky yeah. prop humor. I even saw the original uh, Pee Wee show on HBO in like 78 or something, and it stunned me because it was very already, I was doing something similar already, you know. I didn't realize it was that old, 78. Yeah, yeah it was one of the first HBO comedy specials, huh. and everybody kept I, it, it, and it was hard to see fine because you know, not many people had cable. Anyway, I was it was in the air what I was doing, and it was kind of reflected in the culture night. But I never imagined myself working in television. No. What's uh? I forgot to ask this earlier. What what's uh, Paul Rubens like? Uh, Paul is very uh, low key. 
He's very low energy in person. He has a deep voice. Because that you know that character, he's not obviously, the character at all. Yeah. He doesn't carry that kind of energy. I mean, his yeah. performance in in Blow, uh, the, yeah. the uh, I can't remember who did that movie, but early in the '90s, um, was just incredible, and it gave yeah. me this whole new appreciation for him. And I, I mean, his role was just incredible, and he's done a lot of other things since then. But that's that's more of his that's more of his energy level, that kind of low key kind gotcha. of guy, you know. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, so okay, so MTV is you know again is in, in its infancy, and how does does a Peter Gabriel video get on your radar because I don't I can only I mean I don't know what kind of music you listen to but I don't know many people that don't at least appreciate Peter Gabriel at a pretty high level yeah he's a great guy personally but uh, I got the job simply because the the director of the first season of Pee Wee Steven Johnson had done another amazing Peter Gabriel video called Sledgehammer sure yeah and that and through Sledgehammer he got the Pee Wee job and then a year rolls by and he gets an, a chance to do another one with Big Time and because we knew each other from Pee Wee he I got the uh, art director job. This, this is a, maybe a question you probably can't answer at all, uh, or maybe you can. What Peter Gabriel had that run of doing videos like that. He yeah. didn't do that that kind of stuff. I mean, he's always a little flamboyant, but he he, yeah. he didn't do that kind of stuff early, and he hasn't done it as much since. I first started listening to him in the early '90s with uh, "Digging in the Dirt" mm -hmm. is one of those kinds of out there videos, and I, I always wondered was that just a, a, a artistic experimental stretch of his career? Or? Well, his early days with Genesis, they did a lot of real weirdo theatrical. Did they? I might have just, yeah. I, I know Phil Collins' Genesis better than I know Peter Gabriel's no, Genesis. No. Genesis started out as kind of a performance art kind of thing. Okay. They had costumes and puppets. So he's weirder than I gave him credit for. Oh, yeah. Okay. He was always trying to uh, do something visual, too, along with the music in his early career. And that changed, I guess, as it went along. But yes, that one little stretch there, he really went for it. And I was lucky enough to, to jump on the wagon there as it came rolling by. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's incredible uh, work. And then what really caught my eye, because I am a child of the 90s and a huge grunge music fan, so all those bands I love, and um, Smashing Pumpkins video, which I hadn't seen in forever, um, yeah. and I forgot how cool it was. Yeah. Um, how, how did that come, come together with... with well, I got that pumpkins. job again through people I knew, people I worked with. That was directed by a husband and wife team, Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris. And I had known them uh, uh, socially in Hollywood, and uh, we had always wanted to work together. And they knew that at the time I was doing these, these really kind of old-fashioned paintings. I was doing these big battle scenes that looked like they were from the 19th century, steamboats coming down the river. I was, this was the phase that I was doing right before I started my word paintings. And they knew I was doing these old-timey 19th century images, and this video came up, and they had the concept of doing this antique 19th century Jules Verne steampunky kind of thing, and they knew that I could do that. And it, it came together nice. And uh, So how, how does that, when someone comes up with a concept for something like that, a small film project like that, is it just they just give you kind of a basic thought and then you kind of just create around that and then you just, you know, maybe you run it by, hey, what do you think about this, that kind of thing? Or is it like, here's exactly what we want to do. Can you make it? Like, we, we specifically want to make a John Ross head. Can you make it? You know, that's obviously pretty self-explanatory. A lot of the times for a project like that, it was very specific. They came to me and they said, we, we want to do our own version of George Maillet's old movie, A Trip to the Moon. I, I don't know. That's what that... 
I read his name and, and looked him up for French. Yeah, uh, French he's a French guy. filmmaker, yeah. very early pioneer. He made these really wild and crazy little science fiction movies in the 1901. And this Millet's Trip to the Moon is a very famous film. And they wanted to do a pastiche or takeoff of that for the pumpkins. So that was locked in place. But as far as the visuals go, there's freedom, you know. So and I and I loved that. I would give them variations on the spaceship and then they would pick one. And uh, you know, I had a lot of freedom as to, to do my own version of it, things. In the filming process for for a, a project like that, how much interaction do you have with the artists themselves, I, like Peter or, or Billy Corgan or whoever? With Peter uh, I had a lot of interaction. He was in on a lot of the early meetings, and I showed him my ideas and storyboards, and and uh, we had a we had a nice time um, interacting. And I really liked him a lot. He's really yeah, I bet one I of bet. my favorite people to work with. But uh, with the pumpkins, I didn't meet him at all. Really, I, I, well, I thought about that especially because technology had had increased by that point yeah. to where maybe you didn't you could all work remotely is what i thought probably on that one i yeah i wasn't around for the days that they shot i was just around for like you know scenes they weren't in well it's incredible work wayne white is my guest we'll wrap up here in a minute i know you got to get back to work uh, i was going to ask you about uh, but i forgot i'm glad you said it your word paintings yeah what what <laughs> i know what that i know what the word word means and i know what paintings means but what are, what are your word paintings well, I call them word paintings. They're, uh, it's it's a, a series I've been doing for 17 years now. It's how I got back into the art world. I find uh, th thrift store landscape reproductions, and I paint giant letters into them. It all sounds very mundane, but it's uh, it's a career. <laughs> hey, you've been you've been hustling since you were uh, right. second grade. So That's right. uh, whatever whatever works, and and uh, it's 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 it looks it's an incredible career, and and Thank I you. I hope that more people in Chattanooga can come to uh, realize and and appreciate it. I know a lot more are because you said back in whatever year in, the, in Nashville, it wasn't a good place for uh, artistic no. things you were looking for. Things have changed. And they have changed. I go to Nashville all the time, and Chattanooga would have been even worse at that oh, time. Oh, yeah. No, things have changed for the much the better and for it's, Chattanooga. It's, it's, finally, it's finally um, getting to where that your your talents are being um, showcased, and I, I really hope that more people listen to this podcast, tell your friends, and uh, and, and, and come down to the, the exhibit, which me and Jennifer and whoever she wants to bring along, we'll make sure everybody knows all the specifics and everything coming up here just minute cool but yeah yeah uh i'm really really excited about wayne arama and i urge everybody to come see it i really do wayne thank you so much this was a treat thanks brian thanks for having me all right this is the stone on air podcast that is wayne white oops it's knocked over the microphone and that'll do it for today run a little bit late today and i am looking forward to wayne arama coming back to the library later this month through the end of the year thank you so much for finding the show we're back to our regular time thursday next week a review of the bobcat goldthwaite show and whatever else happens between now and then. See you later. Bye.